Section 14 of Salt Mines and Castles by Thomas Carr Howe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by T.R. Love of Pleasant Hill, California. Mission to Amsterdam, the Wiesbaden Manifesto, Part 2. Under Lamont's skillful supervision, preparations for the shipment proceeded according to schedule. Lamont chose Captain Kelleher as his assistant. Together, they located the cases from Captain Farmer's records. Only a few of the Kaiser Friedrich pictures had been taken out of the cases in which they had been originally packed for removal from Berlin to the Merkers mine. The larger cases contained as many as a dozen pictures. It was slow work opening the cases and withdrawing a particular canvas for repacking. Seldom were any two of the specified 200 paintings in a single case. When they were all finally assembled, each one was photographed. In the midst of the proceedings, the supply of film and paper ran out. The nearest replacements were at Mannheim. A day was lost in obtaining the necessary authorization to requisition fresh supplies. It took the better part of another day to make the trip to Mannheim and back. Thanks to Lamont's careful calculations, maximum use was made of the original cases in repacking the 200 paintings after a photographic record had been made of their condition. While these operations were in progress, detailed plans for the actual shipment of the paintings had to be worked out. Colonel McBride and Bounsell took up the matter of shipping space with General Ross, Chief of Transportation. Sailing schedules were consulted. An army transport, the James Parker, was selected. As an alternative, temporary consideration was given to the idea of trucking the pictures to Bremen and sending them by a naval vessel from there. But the Bremen sailing schedules were unsatisfactory. A special metal car was requisitioned to transport the cases from Frankfurt by way of Paris to Le Havre. A 24-hour guard detail was appointed to accompany the car from Frankfurt to the ship. Trucks and escort vehicles were procured for the 25-mile trip from Wiesbaden to the Frankfurt rail yards. It was decided that Lamont should be responsible for delivering the pictures to the National Gallery in Washington, where they were to be placed in storage. Bonsall drafted the orders. He worked on them a full day. It took two more days to have them cut. They were unique in one respect. Lamont, a second lieutenant, was appointed officer in charge. His designated assistant was a commander in the Navy. This was Commander Keith Merrill, an old friend of Colonel McBride's, who happened to be in Frankfurt. He offered his service to the colonel and subsequently crossed on the James Parker with Lamont and the pictures. Lamont and Joe Kelleher finished the packing one day ahead of schedule. The 45 cases, lined with waterproof paper, were delivered to the Frankfurt rail yards and loaded onto the car. From there, the car was switched to the station and attached to the night train for Paris. Bonsall and I returned to the office to take up where we had left off. As usual, Edith Standen had taken care of everything while we had been preoccupied with the Westward Ho shipment. There had been no major crises. Judging from the weekly field reports, restitution to the Dutch and the French was proceeding without interruption. 
Edith produced a stack of miscellaneous notations. The Belgian representative had arrived in Munich. The Stockholm Museum had offered a supply of lumber to be used in repairing war-damaged German buildings of cultural importance. There had been two inquiries concerning a modification of Law 52, the military government regulation which forbade trafficking in works of art. A report from Würzburg indicated that emergency repairs to the roof of the residence were nearing completion. Lieutenant Rohrmer had called from Heidelberg about the books at Offenbach. Of all the problems which confronted the MFA and A section, none was more baffling than that of the books at Offenbach. There were more than two million of them. They had been assembled from Jewish libraries throughout Europe by the Institut zur Erfundung der Judenfrage, Institute for the Investigation of the Jewish Question, at Frankfurt. At the close of the war, a small part of the collection was found in a large private house in Frankfurt. The rest was discovered in a repository to the north of the city at Hungen. The house in Frankfurt had been bombed, leaving undamaged only the books stored in the cellar. 120,000 volumes were removed from the damp cellar to the Rothschild Library, which, though damaged, was still intact. Examination of this portion of the collection revealed that it contained more than 60 libraries looted from occupied countries. Subsequently, the rest of the collection was transferred from Hungen to an enormous warehouse at Offenbach across the river from Frankfurt. The ultimate disposition of this library, probably the greatest of its kind in the world, was the subject of heated discussions, both written and oral. Several leading Jewish scholars had expressed the hope that it could be kept together and eventually established in some center of international study. Our immediate responsibility was the care of the books in their two present locations. That alone was exceedingly difficult. It would take months, perhaps years, to make an inventory. Judge Samuel Rifkin General Clay's advisor on Jewish affairs had requested that 25,000 volumes be made available for distribution among the DP camps. I referred the request to the two archivists who had recently joined our staff, Paul Vanderbilt and Edgar Breitenbach. While I sympathized with the tragic plight of the Jewish DPs, there were the unidentified legal owners of the books to be taken into account. One of our archivists felt that we should accede to the judge's request. The other disagreed. The matter was referred to Berlin for a decision. After several weeks, we received word from Berlin that no books were to be released. The judge persisted. Ten days later, Berlin reconsidered. The books could be released, that is, 25,000 of them, on condition that no rare or irreplaceable volumes were included in the selection. Also, the volumes chosen were to be listed on a custody receipt. Up to the time of my departure from Frankfurt, no books had been released. During the latter part of November, we concentrated on future personnel requirements for the MFANA program in the American Zone. Current directives indicated that drastic reductions in military government installations throughout the zone could be expected in the course of the next six or eight months. 
Already, we had begun to feel the impact of the Army's accelerated redeployment program. Bonsall and I took stock of our present resources. We had lost four officers and three enlisted men since the first of the month. To offset them, we had gained two civilians, but they were archivists, urgently needed in a specialized field of our work. We couldn't count on them as replacements. We drew up a chart showing the principal MFA and A offices and depots in each of the three Linda. In Bavaria, for example, there were at Munich the land office and the central collecting point, a newly established archival collecting point at Oberammergau, and the auxiliary collecting point at Bomberg. The two secondary offices, one in Upper Bavaria, another in Lower Bavaria. In Greater Hesse, there were the land office and the central collecting point at Wiesbaden, the offices at Frankfurt and Kassel, and the collecting points at Offenbach and Marburg. In Württemberg-Baden, the smallest of the three lender, the land office, was at Stuttgart. There was a secondary one at Karlsruhe. The principal repositories requiring MFA and A supervision were the great mines at Heilbronn and Kockendorf. We hoped that certain of these establishments could be closed out in a few months. Others would continue to operate for an indefinite period. We regarded the land offices as permanent. Likewise, the collecting points, with the exception of Marburg. And Marburg would have to be maintained until it had been thoroughly sifted for loot, or until we received authorization to effect interzonal transfers. Most of the Rhineland museums were in the British zone, but the collections were at Marburg. The British had requested their return. Until our Berlin office approved the request, we could do nothing. It was impossible to make an accurate forecast of our personnel needs. Nevertheless, we entered on the chart tentative reductions with accompanying dates. The chart would serve as a basic guide in the allocation of civilian positions when the conversion program got seriously underway. A number of our officers had already signified their intentions of converting to civilian status if the promised program ever materialized. Early in December, Bonsall went home on 30 days leave. Allowing two weeks for transportation each way, he would be gone about two months. In his absence, I was acting chief of the section. Under the Navy's new point system, I had been eligible for a release on the 1st of November, but had requested an extension of active duty in anticipation of Bonsall's departure. I was not looking forward with enthusiasm to the period of his absence because of the personnel problems which lay ahead. My apprehensions were justified. Our chart, based on a realistic concept of the work yet to be done, was rejected by the personnel section. I was told that each land could draw up its own TO, table of organization. Perhaps there could be some coordination at a later day. Even the TO of our own office at USFET was thrown back at us with the discouraging comment that the proposed civil service ratings would have to be downgraded. During the next eight weeks, there must have been a dozen personnel conferences between the top brass of USFET and the military governors of the three Linda, 
and between them and the moguls of the Group Control Council. Not once, to my knowledge, was the MFANA section consulted. For a while, I exhorted applicants for civilian MFANA jobs to be patient, but as the weeks went by and the job allocations failed to materialize, applications were withdrawn. Stars and Stripes contributed to my discomfort with glittering forecasts of military government jobs paying from seven to $10,000 a year. There were positions which paid such salaries, but Stars and Stripes might have stressed the fact that there were many more which paid less. I remember one mousy little sergeant who applied for a job with us. In civilian life, he had received a salary of $1,200 a year. On his application blank, he stipulated as the minimum he would accept the sum of $6,000. Fortunately, there were diversions from these endless personnel problems. Edith and I fell into the habit of going over to Wiesbaden on Saturday afternoons. It was a relief to escape from the impersonal life at our headquarters to the friendly country atmosphere of the land and city detachments. We were particularly fond of our monuments officers there. They were a dissimilar trio, Captain Farmer, Lieutenant Ratensky, and Captain Kelleher. Walter Farmer presided over the collecting point. Walter seldom relaxed. He was an intense fellow, jumpy in his movements and unconsciously brusque in conversation. He was an excellent host, loved showing us about the collecting point particularly his treasure room with its wonderful medieval objects, and at the end of a tour, invariably produced a bottle of Tokay in his office. Sam Ratensky, MFANA officer for the land, was short, slender, and had red hair. In civilian life, he had been associated with Frank Lloyd Wright and was deeply interested in city planning. Sam usually looked harassed, but his patience and understanding were inexhaustible. He was accurate in his appraisals of people and had a quiet sense of humor. Joe Kelleher, Sam's deputy, was a black Irishman. The war had temporarily interrupted his brilliant career in the fine arts department at Princeton. At 28, Joe had the poise, balance, and tolerance of a man twice that age. With wit and charm added to these soberer qualities, he was a dangerously persuasive character. On one occasion, during Bonsall's absence, he all but succeeded in hypnotizing our office into assigning a disproportionate number of our best officers to the MFANA activities of Greater Hesse. When Sam Ratensky went home in February, Joe succeeded him as MFANA officer for the land. He held this position until his own release several months later. His intelligent supervision of the work was a significant contribution to the success of the American Fine Arts Program in Germany. Another monuments officer whose visits to Wiesbaden rivaled Edith's and mine in frequency was Captain Everett Parker Leslie, Jr. He disliked his given name and preferred to be called Bill. Leslie had been in Europe since the invasion. He was known as the Stormy Petrel of MFANA, and with good reason. He was brilliant and unpredictable. 
a master of oral and written invective, he was terrible in his denunciation of stupidity and incompetence. During the fall months, Bill was attached to the 15th Army with headquarters at Bad Nauheim. This was the Paper Army, so-called because its function was the compilation of a history of the war. Bill was writing a report of MFANA activities during combat. He was a virtuoso of the limerick. I was proud of my own repertoire, but Bill knew all of mine and 50 more of his own composing. He usually telephoned me at the office when he had turned out a particularly good one. Upon the completion of his report for 15th Army, Leslie was appointed MFANA officer at Frankfurt. As a part of his duties, he assumed responsibility for the two million books at Offenbach and the Rothschild Library. Within a week, he had submitted a report on the two depots and drafted practical plans for their effective reorganization. While Walter Farmer was on leave in England before Christmas, Joe Kelleher took charge of the Wiesbaden collecting point. The Dutch and French restitution representatives had gone home for the holidays. Joe had the spare time to examine some of the unopened cases. He asked Edith and me to come over one evening. He said that he might have a surprise for us. I said we'd come and asked if I might bring Colonel Close, chief of the restitution control branch. The colonel had never seen the collecting point. We drove over in the colonel's car. After early dinner with Joe at the city detachment, we went down to the collecting point. Joe unlocked the treasure room and switched on the lights. The colonel whistled when he looked around the room. Those are the Polish church treasures which the Nazis swiped, said Joe, pointing casually to the gold and silver objects stacked on shelves and tables. There's something a lot more exciting in that box. He walked over to a packing case about five feet square, which stood in the center of the room. The lid had been unscrewed, but was still in place. It was marked in black letters, Kiste 28 Ekit. Abteilung Bonte Königin Til Il Amarna Nisht Kippen Case 28 Egyptian Department Painted Queen Tel El Amarna Don't Tilt Joe grinned with satisfaction as I read the markings. The Painted Queen, Queen Nefertiti. This celebrated head, the most beautiful piece of Egyptian sculpture in the world, had been one of the great treasures of the Berlin Museum. It was a momentous occasion. There was every reason to believe that the German museum authorities had packed the head with proper care. Even so, the case had been moved around a good deal in the meantime, first from the Merkers mine to the vaults of the Reichsbank in Frankfurt, and then from Frankfurt to Wiesbaden. There was not much point in speculating about that now. We'd know the worst in a few minutes. Joe and I laid the lid aside. The box was filled with a white packing material. At first I thought it was cotton, but it wasn't. It was glass wool. In the very center of the box lay the head, swathed in silk paper. Gingerly, we lifted her from the case and placed her on the table. We unwound the silk paper. Nefertiti was unharmed and as bewitching as ever. She was well-named, the beautiful one is here. 
While we studied her from every angle, Joe recounted the story of the Nefertiti, her discovery and subsequent abduction to Berlin. She was the wife of Akhenaten, enlightened pharaoh of the 14th century B.C. This portrait of her was excavated in the winter of 1912 by Dr. Ludwig Borchardt, famous German Egyptologist, on the site of Tel El Amarna, Akhenaten's capital. In compliance with the regulations of the Egyptian government, Borchardt submitted a list of his finds at Tel El Amarna to Monsieur Mespero of the Cairo Museum. According to the story, Mespero merely glanced at the list to make certain that a 50-50 division had been made and did not actually examine the items. The head was taken to Berlin and placed in storage until after the First World War. When it was placed on exhibition in 1920, the Egyptian government protested loudly that Dr. Borchardt had deceived the authorities of the Cairo Museum and demanded the immediate return of the head. The Egyptian government was again pressing its claim in March 1946. After replacing Nefertiti in her case, Joe showed the colonel the collection of rare medieval treasures, including those of the Guff family, patents, chalices, and reliquaries of exquisite workmanship dating from the 11th and 12th century. With a fine sense of showmanship, he saved the most spectacular piece till the last, the famous crown of St. Stephen, the first Christian king of Hungary, crowned by the Pope in the year 1000. It was adorned with enamel plaques, bordered with pearls, and studded with great uncut gems. Joe said there was a difference of opinion among scholars as to the exact date and provenance of the enamels. The crown was surmounted by a bent gold cross. According to Joe, the cross had been bent for 400 years and would never be straightened. During the 16th century, the safety of the crown was endangered. It was entrusted to the care of a Hungarian noblewoman who concealed it in a compartment under the seat of her carriage. The space was small, and when the lid was closed and weighted down by the occupant of the carriage, the cross got bent. The Hungarian coronation regalia included three other pieces, a sword, an orb, and a scepter. The scepter was extremely beautiful. The stock was of rich gold filigree and terminated in a spherical ornament of carved rock crystal. The regalia was kept in a specially constructed iron trunk with three locks, the keys to which were entrusted to three different nobles. At the close of the present war, American troops apprehended a Hungarian officer with the trunk. Perhaps he was trying to safeguard the regalia as his predecessor in the 16th century had done. In any case, the American authorities thought they'd better relieve him of that grave responsibility. A few days after our visit to Wiesbaden with Colonel Kluss, I received a letter from home enclosing a clipping from the December 7th edition of the New York Times. The clipping read as follows. $80 million paintings arrived from Europe on army transport. A valuable store of art, said to consist entirely of paintings worth upwards of $80 million, arrived here last night from Europe in the holds of the army transport James Parker. Where the paintings came from and where they are going was a mystery. 
and no Army officer on the pier at 44th Street and North River, where the Parker docked with 2,483 service passengers, would discuss the shipment or even admit it was on board. It was learned elsewhere that a special detail of Army officers was on the ship during the night to take charge of the consignment, which will be unloaded today. Unusual precautions were taken to keep the arrival of the paintings secret. The canvases were included in more than 40 crates and were left untouched during the night under lock and key. Presumably, the shipment was gathered at sites in Europe, where priceless stores of paintings and art objects stolen by the Nazis from the countries they overran were discovered when Allied forces broke through into Germany and the dominated countries. The White House announced in Washington two months ago that shipments of art would be brought here for safekeeping to be kept in trust for the rightful owners, and the National Gallery of Art, through its chairman, Chief Justice Harlan Fisk Stone, was asked to provide storage and protection for the works while they are in this country. The gallery is equipped with controlled ventilation and expert personnel for the storage and handling of such works. The White House announcement gave no listing of the paintings, but it is known that among the vast stores seized, including caches in Italy as well as Germany and Hermann Goering's famous $200 million art collection, were included many of the world's art treasures and works of the masters. By coincidence, I received that same day a copy of the New York Times Overseas Weekly edition of December 9, which carried substantially the same story, except for the fact that it stated unequivocally that the paintings shipped to America were Nazi loot. Edith and I were gravely disturbed by the inaccuracy of the statements in these articles. Our concern was increased by the fact that the articles had appeared in so reliable a publication as the Times. What could have happened to the official press release on the subject issued on the 24th of November when the James Parker was ready to sail? Open footnote. See in this connection the statements released to the press by the White House on September 26, 1945 and by the War Department on December 6, 1945. They are printed in Magazine of Art for February 1946. Close footnote. And why all the mystery? I reread the December 7 clipping. To me, there was the implication that we were shipping loot in wholesale lots to the United States. That would be alarming news to the countries whose stolen artworks we were already returning as rapidly as possible. The Times story most emphatically called for correction. But if a statement from our office were sent through channels, it probably wouldn't reach New York before Easter. Edith looked up from her work. There was a glint in her eye. She asked, Will you do me a favor? I'd like to write the letter of correction. I told her to go ahead. Ten minutes later, she showed me the rough draft. It covered all the points. I reworked the phrase here and there, but made no important changes. As soon as it was typed and cleared, I signed and mailed it. As published in the New York Times two weeks later, on January 2, 1946, the letter read as follows. 
To the editor of the New York Times, on December 7, the Times printed a report to the effect that $80 million worth of paintings, presumably from the stores of art objects stolen by the Nazis, had arrived from Europe in the Army transport James Parker. Your Overseas Weekly edition of December 9 repeated this information, but stated categorically that the paintings were Nazi loot. It is true that the James Parker brought to America some 200 paintings of inestimable value, but none of them is loot or of dubious ownership. They are the property of the Kaiser Friedrich Museum in Berlin. A press release from the Office of Military Government for Germany, U.S., dated November 24, states that these priceless German-owned paintings, which might suffer irreparable damage if left in Germany through the winter, have been selected for temporary storage in the United States. These paintings have been gathered from various wartime repositories in the United States zone of Germany and are being shipped to Washington to ensure their safety and to hold them in trust for the people of Germany. The United States government has promised their return to the German people. It cannot be stated too emphatically that the policy of the American military government is to return all looted works of art to their owner nations with the greatest possible speed. Since the restitution in August of the famous Van Eyck altarpiece, The Mystic Lamb, to Belgium, a steady stream of paintings, sculpture, fine furniture, and other art objects poured from the highly organized collecting points of the United States zone to the liberated countries. Few, if any, looted works of art of any importance are of unknown origin, and though among the vast masses of material taken from the Jews and other enemies of state for what was always described as safekeeping, there will undoubtedly be many pieces whose ownership will be difficult to determine. It appears unlikely that these will be found to be of great value. The shipment of German-owned paintings to the United States is thus a project entirely separate from the main objectives of the Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives section of the Office of Military Government, namely the restitution of loot and the re-establishment of the German museums and other cultural organizations. To confuse this shipment, which was directed by the highest national authority, with what is now the routine work of preservation, identification, and restitution performed by trained specialist personnel, is to mislead our allies and to underrate the accomplishments of a small group of disinterested and hardworking Americans. Thomas C. Howe, Jr., Lieutenant Commander, USNR, Deputy Chief Director on Leave, California Palace of the Legion of Honor, San Francisco, European Theater, December 18, 1945. The main objectives of the Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives section of the American military government in Germany were defined in my letter to the New York Times as the restitution of loot and the reestablishment of the German museums and other cultural institutions honorable and constructive objectives, and, as expressed in that letter, unequivocal and reassuring both to the liberated countries of Europe and to the Germans. Yet how difficult of attainment! 
How difficult even to keep those objectives clearly in mind when confronted simultaneously, as our officers often were, with a dozen problems of equal urgency. At close range, it was impossible to look objectively at the overall record of our accomplishments, but homeward bound in February, I had that opportunity. The pieces of the puzzle began to fit together and the picture took shape. It was possible to determine to what extent we have realized our objectives. So far as restitution is concerned, the record has been a success. During the summer months, our energies were devoted to obvious preliminary preparations. They included the establishment of central collecting points at Munich, Marburg, and Wiesbaden. Immediately thereafter, the contents of art repositories in the American zone were removed to those central depots. The central collecting points organized and directed by monuments officers with museum experience, were staffed with trained personnel from German museums. The one at Munich was primarily reserved for looted art, since the majority of the cultural booty was found in Bavaria. The collecting points at Wiesbaden and Marburg, on the other hand, housed German-owned collections brought from repositories in which storage conditions were unsatisfactory. The process of actual restitution was inaugurated by token restitutions in the name of General Eisenhower to Belgium, Holland, France, and Czechoslovakia. Circumstances beyond our control postponed similar gestures of goodwill to Poland and Greece. Representatives of the liberated countries were invited to the American zone to identify and remove the loot from the collecting points. According to late reports, the restitution of loot was continuing without interruption. Shortly after my return, there were disquieting rumors of drastic reductions in American personnel connected with cultural restitution in Germany. I earnestly hoped that these rumors were without foundation. Such reductions would be disastrous to the completion of a program which has reflected so creditably on our government. The reestablishment of German museums and other cultural institutions, our second main objective, has been, to a large extent, sacrificed in the interests of restitution. This brings up again the urgent need for the immediate replenishment of our dwindling fine arts personnel in Germany. Our moral responsibility for the continuation of this phase of the MFA&A program is a grave one. It was understandably neglected during the first six months of our occupation in Germany, and it would be unfair to argue that the British have far outdistanced us in this field. That they have done so is undeniably true. However, the British found but little loot in their zone. Consequently, they have been able to make rapid strides in the reconstitution of German collections and cultural institutions while we have been preoccupied with restitution. Notwithstanding that preoccupation, our monuments officers were instrumental in arranging a series of impressive exhibitions of German-owned masterpieces. The first of these was held at Marburg in November 1945. A second and more ambitious show, which included many of the fine treasures of the Bavarian State Galleries, opened at Munich in January 1946. 
a third comprising paintings and sculptures from the museums of Berlin and Frankfurt, was presented at Wiesbaden in February. All these exhibitions were accompanied by catalogues with German and English texts. Those of Munich and Wiesbaden were lavishly illustrated. The Munich catalog contained several plates showing the rooms in which the exhibition was held, lofty, spacious galleries recalling the marble halls of our own National Gallery at Washington. At the time of my departure from Germany, little was known of the French and Russian procedures with regard to cultural rehabilitation in their respective zones of occupation. Their military governments have made provisions for personnel capable of carrying on work similar to ours and that of the British. The caliber of the men drawn into the project from all branches of our armed forces has been cited as an important factor in the success of the Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives program. I would like to cite another factor which I consider equally important. There was no arbitrary drafting of personnel. Participation was voluntary. The resulting spontaneity and its value to the spirit of the work cannot be exaggerated. End of section 14. End of Salt Mines and Castles, The Discovery and Restitution of Looted European Art by Thomas Carr Howe.